And in John chapter 15, we looked at the different relationships that a Christian, that a believer is to have, according to the Lord Jesus. We have our relationship with our Lord Jesus. Obviously, he saved us. This is a foundational relationship, which all other relationships hinge off of. From there, we have relationships with other believers, and that should be a a relationship that's born out of love. Uh, The third relationship that we have, and sometimes it's a tenuous relationship, is the relationship with the world, the unsaved world. Uh, When you're really shining the light of Christ and they're doing evil things, then they really have a problem with that, and you may be persecuted uh, by that, and we're going to look at that. But at the same time, we're supposed to love the world and forgive those that treat us spitefully and abuse us and try to really win them to Christ. And in essence, I would say this, that they're on the same side as us if we do win them to Christ. Uh, The fourth relationship that we are looking at, we looked at last chapter and we're going to really cover more of it, is the relationship of the believer to the Holy Spirit. And in this chapter, we're going to have a greater understanding of the Holy Spirit. Well, number one, the relationship was to the disciples in the context of the scriptures. And basically, uh, there was a pillory or a persecution that was coming against the church, and the disciples needed to understand that they had help, that they had, uh, and again, it was new to them. So it was, you know, Jesus was taking it step by step. Uh, But also for us believers, again, we're also followers of Christ, aren't we? God also has a plan for us, doesn't he? So we also get a benefit to understanding this Holy Spirit, this third person of the Godhead, that to many is very mysterious. So chapter 16, verse 1, Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you that you should not be made to stumble. They will put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers God's service. These things they will do to you because they have not known the Father nor me. But these things I have told you that when the time comes, you may remember that I told you of them. And these things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. So initially, when we take chapters 15 and 16 together, Jesus is preparing the disciples for the persecution they're going to face after his departure. And there's a little bit of a learning curve that's involved with this. And he says, I don't want it to to make you stumble. I don't want you to stumble. I don't want it to entrap you. I don't want it to trip you up or to entice you to sin. In other words, I'm preparing you beforehand, before it takes place. However, it is true that sometimes when we're not prepared for a trial or a temptation, it can bring out the worst in us, can it? We get caught off guard. We resort to the flesh. We, we resort to what we know. You know. We go back to default mode. However, preparation is very important. And many today are not prepared. They're, they don't do well because they're not prepared. So how do we prepare? Well, we need to be in the Word. We need to be in prayer. We need to uh, rely on the Holy Spirit. We need to be in fellowship. Now, some look at this as a set of rules, a bunch of man-made rules. Well, God made us, and he understands our framework. He understands what's good for us, and he understands what, what makes us fall. So he didn't do this to be mean. He did it to help us to be prosperous and to be successful in a spiritual sort of way, and really in, in the world as well. So two, I'm going to put you out of the synagogues. And, and somebody who, whoever kills you, are going to think that they offer God's service, that they're doing God a favor. This religious persecution that we're speaking about here. 
right? Ranging from disfellowship to murder <laughs> and anything in between. And this became a reality in the book of Acts, you know, especially Acts chapter 8. And who was doing most of the persecution? A young Pharisee named Saul, who later became the apostle Paul. Right? God had a major conversion in his life. But they will actually think they're doing God a favor or service. And so Saul thought this. Now, I'm just going to say, because some of the stuff, listen, this, this is the truth. Sometimes it can be offensive to some, but listen, you can't make the truth pretty. Uh, unfortunately, over the years, in, in, under the name of religion or even under the name of Christianity, uh, some have authored persecution, right? Religious people. If you look at the Middle Ages, the church was doing much of the persecution in the form of inquisitions or forced conversion of the Jews. And if you read their writings, you will see very quickly that they thought they were doing God a favor. They were acting in the name of God. Of course, they weren't. Now, fast forward some several uh, centuries, we see the rise of radical Islam. And if you were to talk to some of these folks, they would say the same thing. They think that they're doing God a service. And the highest honor is this jihad where literally the beheadings, and, and some of the stuff has been on, on TV and it's, it's horrible, came to our soil in the United States in the form of 9-11, in the form of the Fort Hood shootings. And what did they say before they carried it out? Well, Army psychiatrist Major Nidal Hassan shot and killed 13 servicemen and wounded 29 others. And what did he scream as he was firing these, the guns at the people? He was saying, Allahu Akbar, which in Arabic means God is the greatest. He thought he was doing God a favor in his mind. And we're going to talk more about that. But in the book of Revelation, it speaks about it in a time in our future where beheadings would be the order of capital punishment of the day. And it's kind of funny because 20, 30 years ago, we would read the book of Revelation and say, that's so archaic. But in that radical Islamist mindset, that is a high honor to take off somebody's head for Allah. So what does that tell us? It tells us this stuff is going to increase. And if we get out of the bubble of American media that spoon feeds us what they want us to, to, to read, and learn, and we get out of that bubble and look at overseas news, we'll see it's a whole different world out there. We live in an American bubble, and the media, you know, they're all in it together. It is collusion. I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but they all go to the same clubs, you know, they all hang out with the same politicians, and, and this is the way it is in America, unfortunately. Verse 3, he says, And these things they will do to you because they have not known the Father nor me. Does God ask us? Christians to kill somebody if they don't agree with us? Of course not. That's totally absurd. But when you don't know the voice of God, you will listen to other voices. If you're not trained on his voice, the voice of the good shepherd, you will be susceptible to false shepherds. I want to read a, one verse, 1 Timothy 4.1. There's a context to this, but it does say, Now the Spirit, the Holy Spirit expressly says, explicitly says, that in the latter time some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. Now some will laugh and say, oh, Satan, that's kind of funny. You Christians always point to that fallen angel guy who, with the pitchfork and, and the red suit and the long tail, but this is, this is where I'm going to end with the, with the hard part of what we have to talk about today. And I, I did speak about this last Sunday, December 2012 in Nigeria, a village of Christian was attacked. 
by radical Muslims wielding machetes. Now, in the United States, a lot of gun violence. Guns can be very impersonal. You shoot, you can shoot from a long distance and not know even what the bullet is doing because you can't even see that far. However, with a machete, it's up close and personal. Again, this little girl survived. How sick do you have to be to go up to a bunch of children because they don't believe what you believe, take a machete, and I've used them in, in the, you know, to whack weeds and stuff, but to go up to a human being and cut their arm and cut their heads off. You tell me there's not a devil in this world? There's a philosophy that says man is basically good. You want to take a look at this after service, you can. This is going on all over the world. And the UN, they're burying their heads in their sand. They're talking about different things. Not this, though. Can't make the truth pretty. But it's done in the name of God. Four, he's, he's preparing them. I've told you these things that when the time comes, you may remember that I told you of them. And these things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. Jesus was a master teacher. There was no sense in the first year or the second year of ministry to go into real detail. Why? Because he was trying to get the disciples to focus, to focus on the Holy Spirit, to focus on growing in faith, to focus on learning the things of God. If he told them right in the beginning, you guys are going to get persecuted, and this, they probably, that's all they would have thought about. They would have been hyper-focused on that. So he goes, I didn't tell you these things in the beginning. I was with you. And Jesus was also protecting them. Sure, they endured some aggravation from the authorities, but they were untouchable. It was a prophetic protection until the time came where the persecution would start. You see, in Daniel chapter 9, there was actually a clock, a prophetic time clock, that did not allow the Messiah to be uh, killed and removed until this time clock ran out. And Daniel's a very fascinating book to, to read. It's so fascinating and so detailed that for years, some thought that Daniel was written after the events happened, but then they found older parchments and said, nah, you know, God, his prophecies were so detailed that the uh, secular people said, this can't be true. This, nobody could predict the things that this does in such detail. But, you know, they found older documents and said, wow, I guess it was written before these things happened. The last word on persecution before Jesus moves on with his teaching is, and, and I can say this, let me make the last word here, is in the United States now, we have minor persecution. Right? There are some laws in some states where uh, those, it's like a non-proselytizing zone, where some have been arrested, Gideons, for giving out Bibles and such. Uh, this is in America, but it's not to the level of the, the violence that's happening overseas. Why am I talking about us when I should be focusing on the disciples? Well, three reasons. Number one, because we're disciples. In the Greek word, basically, there's a disciple is a disciplined learner. Are we disciplined learners? I would hope so. We can still learn some great things that the Lord taught Matthew and Luke. Did he love Matthew and Luke more than anybody here? Absolutely not. Did he have a purpose for them that he has nobody for here? No. So we are disciples. The, the Bible is also known as the living word, which means that it never gets old. If you pick something up 3,000 years ago and you go through God's word, you can learn something today. It's a living word. It's active. It continues to give life. Now, some of these religious books, you, you pick them up. They're written you know, in the 7th century, and you, you read them, and you can't make heads or tail of them. And there's really no application for your life. But not so with the scripture. The third thing that I want to say about this is that 
Jesus didn't author the persecution, but it's as if he said to his disciples, you guys have to go through this. There's no way around it. And there's going to be times in our lives where there is some trial, there is some dark time that we have to go through. And we so pray so much, Lord, please take me out of this. And he's like, you got to go through it. I've had this discussion with many people over the years. You're asking me to look at this objectively in prayer, and I'm telling you, the Lord is allowing you to go through this, but he wants to be there with you. This theme keeps coming up as we go through these, these chapters in John. So there may be something in your life right now that you're struggling with, but the Lord is saying, I can't take you out of it, but I want to be there with you as you go through it. So keep that in mind. Verse 5, But now I go away to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Well, if we walked with God in the flesh for some three years, we wouldn't want him to leave either. I mean, it just had to be a, a high every day, a spiritual high. Wow, look at it. Just when you thought Jesus couldn't do anything more amazing, he raises a guy from the dead who's been in the tomb for four days. You know, their minds were just completely blown. And now he's going to be taken away from them, and they're young men. This is, this is disappointing. However, as we'll see, the Lord's departure was for their good. Now, and I, I like math, so I'm going to say this. This is a mathematical issue. It's a logistical issue. It's an exponential issue. In other words, that Jesus had 12 disciples. He had three that were really in his inner, inner circle and really were, were with him, and they really wanted to learn. He had 12 who were great guys, except for one who was the son of perdition. Uh, Luke tell us, tells us that there was up to 70 and in John 6 and 7, you could make the assumption that there were more than 100. Nobody really knows. But that's a lot for one, you know, remember, Jesus came in the flesh. He chose to take on that human body. So guess what? He had to sleep. He got tired. He had to eat, right? Uh, so these are the things that he had to do. And he was no, no doubt just going every day, every day, except taking time for prayer and being recharged by the Father. So mathematically, as the church started to grow to hundreds, to thousands, to ten thousands, to hundreds of thousands, you've got one Jesus. He gave up his omnipresence temporarily to take the form of a man. So it was beneficial to them for the Holy Spirit to come now, who had that omnipresence factor again, because that was the form that the Holy Spirit came in. Right? And, and we'll look at that. Some get a little um, upset. They say, well, in John 13, it does seem that Peter asked uh, Jesus where he was going, but he says, now none of you ask me. And I believe that, that the disciples were so caught up in their own feelings and what was going to happen to them that they were concerned for the Lord, but they were probably more concerned for themselves. You know, it wasn't completely sinking in. And we can be there too, can't we? You know, when God is trying to show us something, maybe God's trying to grow us to be, to, to be more mature as a believer, it may not be completely sinking in. All right, so human beings haven't changed. If you think that God can't use you because the disciples were so much better than you and you, know, you read the Bible and you give up, do a character study on some of these guys and gals. They had the same foibles and fears and problems that we do. And I hope that encourages you. Seven, he says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you, but if I depart, I will send him to you. Now I want to stop for a moment and talk about continuity of authority. You know, that 
successive uh, placement of authority and contiguity as well, where one starts and ends, and when one ends, the other one starts, and there's no competition. There's harmony. So as we look at this between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, what we can see is that in the Old Testament, were there instances of the Holy Spirit and Christophanies, you know, Christ's appearance prior to his incarnation? Yes. But for the most part, you had creation. You had the Father's relationship with his, with his creation, with people. Then you had sin. Sin broke that fellowship. And then the Father needed to give the law to Moses, to give the law to people, so they could see that that they were breaking his law. And it would give them this hunger and this emptiness and a stirring, even Job said it, for a savior. We need a savior. So you see the father is so active in the Old Testament. And then what happens is you have the prophets who uh, spoke about the Messiah and spoke about the fate of Israel and God's people. And then you had the minor prophets towards the end that spoke also about the coming Messiah. And then you had the Christ, the Son of God who comes. And now the Son of God kind of takes more center stage because he's got a body. You know, you could cry on his shoulders, you could touch him and be healed, you could hear his voice. So there's this continuity, acquiescing from the Father now to the Son. And when the Son's time uh, had run out, based on the, the, that God's time clock, then the Holy Spirit came. And the Holy Spirit indwells believers, and the Holy Spirit helps us. Holy Spirit comes alongside of us, and we listen to the Holy Spirit. We make good decisions, and we have good judgment. Right? So you see this. So basically, if, if, if we had a map of a timeline, I, I would put in big X and say, you are here. <laughs> okay? You are here. That's where we are. And what's left? Not to brighten your morning, morning too much, but what's left for the future of this world is the more and the further unraveling of society. So things are going to get worse, crime's going to get worse, persecution's going to get worse. just want to brighten your morning a little bit. <laughs> However, we look forward to the rapture. We look forward to the Lord coming back for his saints. We look forward, well, in a sad way, to God's judgment on a rejecting and rebellious world. We look forward to Christ's return, and we look forward to eternity. And, and that's the blessing there. So really, at no time in human history has God ever left men and women alone. See, that's the beauty of God. We can look at those Old Testament scriptures, I will, you know, whether it's Hebrews 13 and it's referencing something, something else, I will never leave you nor forsake you. You know, I knew you before you were in the womb. I formed your inward parts. We can claim those for ourselves as well. God has never left mankind without his presence. He will never leave you alone as well. 2 Samuel 7, that we covered on Wednesday night, David is just pouring out his thankfulness to God because God has been with him. God has made him successful. He's listened to all of David's prayers. And I kind of joke and say, you know, God knew every hair on David's head and God saw the, the pimples at, at David when he was 12 years old and he knew what part of his face that they were on. I mean, this is how God knows us so intimately. God knows when we took our first steps. God knows, he, isn't that amazing, just going to heaven and saying, all right, Lord, how many steps did I work and walk in my life? Oh, three billion, five hundred million. I mean, he just knows all these facts about us. That's how intimately acquainted he is with us. And I want to encourage you this morning, brothers and sisters, that God doesn't want you to do this life alone. Now, is Christianity for weaklings? No. But listen, I don't think I'm a weakling, 
but I'm also not foolish either. I've tried to rely on my own strength in the past, and it's gotten me in trouble many a times. So I'll tell you what, why do I want to keep banging my head against the wall? For the sake of my sovereignty and my self-will, I prefer to give it up and try to follow what the Lord is showing me so that I can be successful in the way that he wants me to be successful. I can tell you that there's not one decision in my Christian life that I haven't made, that I've made with prayer, that I've ever blamed him for. All the years I've been a Christian, which hasn't really been that many, but I can, I can never look back and say, you know what, God, you let me down that time. Maybe when I was going through it, I said it like a baby because I wanted him to be closer to me or I didn't want to go through it. But the truth is, retrospectively looking back, he's never left me alone. You know, hindsight is twenty twenty. No problem with any of his decisions. Anywhere he's taken me. Never let me down. And, and he won't let you down either. But you've got to want it. Verse 8. And when he has come, the Holy Spirit, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin, because they do not believe in me. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Of judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. So the Holy Spirit has a multifaceted, multi-sided role, and Jesus is giving them a glimpse, but he's not giving them too much, because they can only take a little bit at a time. Even as a new believer, Holy Spirit, who's the Holy Spirit? You know, I've seen the statues of Jesus, and you know, I've seen the, the paintings of God and Moses and, and Adam. Who's the Holy Spirit? So even as new believers, it takes us a while to understand the third person of the Godhead. So with the disciples, you know, they weren't super apostles. He gave them a little bit by a little bit, just enough that they they could digest and they could assimilate before his, his death on the cross. So that's what's going on here. Additionally... And, and I'm going to go through these three things, these three, you know, the Holy Spirit will convict the world of sin, he will convict the world of righteousness, and of judgment. We're going to look at God's role, or the Holy Spirit's role, to the unbeliever, to the believer, and through the believer. So I'm going to kind of go back and forth as we go through these. Number one, he will convict the world of sin. The worst sin? Murder? Robbery? No. The worst sin is the rejection of God's Messiah. The sin of unbelief. That is the worst sin. Because they don't believe in me. And then Jesus, he acts, or I'm sorry, the Holy Spirit now acts through the believer to the unbeliever. Now check this out. Sometimes we talk to a person about God and they snap at us. <laughs> could be a family member, could be a coworker, could be somebody, you know, we just really love them. could be a stranger. And they snap at you, they bite and you're like, whoa, what the heck is that about? Well, because now it's not only God convicting them of sin, and maybe he has at some point, but now the Holy Spirit is convicting them of sin through you. All you're doing is hopefully lovingly and with a smile telling them about salvation. But they're convicted. Now, I would say this to you as well. If you've had that negative experience and the person gets enraged for no reason, I think that's a good sign. That's actually better than somebody who just, they, it's a glaze over their eyes because they're completely blinded. They're actually fighting that feeling. They're fighting that truth. They don't want to believe it because they know that it means they'll have to be uh, obedient to God. They'll have to hold him up 
as, his, as their Lord and Savior, and they don't want that right now. So it actually shows that there may be signs of life there spiritually. God could be doing the work. So we can take abuse, and it's okay, but we, you know, we don't get mad at the person. There is a force that's driving them or trying to resist them from, from it getting and sinking through. So the second thing is he will convict the world of righteousness. Now, in the Greek semantic range, this word can also mean convince. And convict and convince kind of can work together. Convict is more of a, you're convicted of this crime. You did something wrong. Convincing can be from a positive way. So you can get it from a negative and a positive. So look at this, this convincing of righteousness. Why? Because Jesus is leaving and it has to be done because I go to my Father. So the Holy Spirit now has to do the work of convincing of righteousness. It has to happen because God so loved the world. So these things have to come into play. They need to understand their sin, as the Lord did in the Old Testament, they need to understand that there is righteousness and that judgment is coming. Right? Hopefully that, that doesn't work there. So what righteousness? Number one, the righteousness of Christ and the righteousness that's available to the believer. Remember, the Holy Spirit does to the believer and sometimes through the believer to unbelievers. So what do we have here? When Jesus was on the cross, he took all the sins of the world. So our righteousness, which is nothing, as filthy rags, as Isaiah says, and wasn't going to get us into heaven, now got dumped on Jesus on the cross. However, his righteousness, when we believe on him, his perfection is now imputed to us. It's like an accounting term. So when God sees us, the sins have already been paid for. He sees us as righteous. So all those things that we did... All those things that we beat ourselves up for, that we feel guilty about, that are in the past, that we hurt someone or it's caused a rift in a relationship, those sins have been paid for at the cross. And I try to talk to people in counseling and say, you're still punishing yourself for something that Christ received the punishment for at the cross, and now you're free. God sees you as clean but you're still torturing yourself. Let it go. Put it under the blood. That's where it belongs. It's dead. It's done. Okay, so this is, this is what the Holy Spirit does. He works through the believer, and hopefully, in our lives, the Holy Spirit is working through us, and we are a light to those around us. Now, righteousness has its, its effects, and some will receive it gladly and, and latch on to you. If you've been a Christian for long enough and you're ministering to somebody, they'll latch on to you. They'll hug you. You guys could be perfect strangers, but they know that God sent you to them for such a time as this. On the other extreme, there could be a visceral hatred, a visceral from the bowels. We're talking Old Testament language here again. Despise for no reason. Jesus said they hated me without a cause. Look at some examples. Maybe the young girl, maybe the teenage girl who has peers, and she's not sexually active because she is trying to display the righteousness of Christ, and it's just something she doesn't want to do. When the other girls find out, you've seen it happen, they can be really mean. Why are they so angry? Because her righteousness is coming out, and she's not even saying a word. She's just displaying it. Or it could be the businessman who is qualified and capable to get that promotion. But every Friday night, the guys at the office and the managers go down and tie a few on, drink a few beers, ogle some women who aren't their wives, and this is not what this man chooses to do. He chooses to be home on a Friday night with his wife and his kids. 
and he doesn't get the promotion. Why? Because they don't trust him. Why don't they trust him? He's, he's just displaying his righteousness and he's living out his faith because that righteousness is, they're not there yet. Because he's not on the same wavelength as they are and somebody else gets the promotion. You can see these things. You've all seen it happen. They're convicted by the righteousness that the man displays and the young girl displays. And there's many other examples. A simple no thank you can bring about an angry response from somebody else. So I'm telling you, only because the Lord says it, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised. Now what does it say about the Christian on the other, on the other side, on the other side, where some Christians want to be like and shine that, that light? They want to be that light to a dying world. And there's other believers who are more carnal. They want to fit in with the world. They don't want to be ostracized by their peers. And they're tempted to do things and say things to look cool. So where is cool going to get us in eternity? Not going to get us anywhere. As a matter of fact, every 10 years, cool changes. So what was cool 60 years ago would be considered whack. I think that's still a term now, you know. <laughs> We've heard that term before. I hope I used it properly. Uh, <laughs> but basically, listen, whether it's social media, Facebook, there's people that are just tempted to put things on there that are just fleshy. Oh, yeah, I watched that fleshy show, too. Oh, yeah, look at that. And they're just on the edge. What's that going to get them? Are you going to win anybody to Christ doing that? No, no. Three, the Holy Spirit will convict the world of judgment. So we covered sin and what it brings. We countered it with righteousness. Now he's bringing it full, full speed with judgment because the prince of this world is going to be judged. Satan is going to be judged. This is where the whole house of cards comes crashing down at some point in human history, and God knows when that is. Here, it seems like evil is evaded. You read about these horrible crimes and somebody gets off on a technicality and you know, this, whatever, they got a really good attorney or whatever the case may be. And it's, it's frustrating. However, there will come a point in time where God is going to make accounting for unatoned sin. Let me say that again. In our future, could be our near future, God is going to make accounting for unatoned sin. Let me read to you what Warren Wiersbe says as he wraps this up. I try not to steal another man's good uh, points. Always give them credit. So in his book, uh, it says, Be Transformed, on page 58. He wraps it up. He says, When a lost sinner is truly under conviction, he will see the folly and evil of unbelief. He will confess that he does not measure up to the righteousness of Christ, and he will realize that he is under condemnation because he belongs to the world and the devil. The only person who can rescue him from such a horrible situation is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. There can be no conversion without conviction, and there can be no conviction apart from the Spirit of God using the Word of God in the witness of a faithful child of God. So I'm, I'm putting my message together, and then I read this, and I'm like, yeah, well, it pretty much wraps up what we're saying here. Let me just jump to another scripture in Ephesians 2, only three verses. Ephesians 2, starting with verse 1. And you, believer, he made alive. Well, I've been, I've been alive for 50-something years. Spiritually alive. He made you alive who were dead 
in trespasses and sin, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, who is going to be judged, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, 1 Timothy 4, that we spoke, spoke about, those demonic doctrines that are whispering to people all the time. Among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. Um, you read that to some unbelievers and they'll fight you, they'll get angry, they will disagree with you vehemently, but this is the truth. So Satan is going to be dealt with first. What seemed like a victory for the demonic kingdom was really a mortal wound to it at the cross. Satan, and we would say this in law enforcement, Satan got his green sheet. When you commit a crime, you get a green sheet. Actually, now it's done on computer, it's ECDR, but they used to give you a sheet. If you've ever been arrested, here are your charges, and eventually you have to face the judge, and if you're guilty, you will face your sentence. But from the green sheet to the sentence could take a little time. Satan received a mortal wound at the cross, However, he will be judged for all eternity. It will, it's a reality. It just hasn't happened yet. I would just say this. I was talking to a young man recently who there's just chaos all around his life. And I said, stay with the Lord. You know, stay the course. Don't get caught up in the stuff that's going on around you. I said, if you've got to be a geek, be a geek. You know, I went to high school with geeks and they're all doing very well right now. You know, <laughs> and me, I did stupid things, and I, you know, caused pain, and I'm not going to go there. Be a square, be the good girl, be the nice girl. And I would just say this, and let, hear me out for a minute. On very rare occasions, very rare occasions, my wife and I will will watch Lifetime for Women Network. Anybody ever hear that? <laughs> now let me explain, okay? <laughs> Don't turn off the CD yet. <laughs> because I'm, it's kind of like from the criminology back standpoint. I'm amazed that some of these girls, these ladies, who look so sweet and they talk a certain way and they're criminals, you know? Um, just such devious things that people do. We're such an appearance-driven society. Oh, no, that, that little girl, she couldn't have done that. There was a 16-year-old girl who led a, a gang of guys to just go up to people and start beating them. And one time they beat a person to death, and that's how there was a video of it, and they all got caught. But in, in the interview, she was very sweet, and she didn't know about the, uh, the videotape, but you, know, you would have thought that she was innocent. So where am I going with this? <laughs> My wife probably sits there going, I never know what he's going to say up there. But what I'm saying is there's a benefit to doing it the Lord's way. There is. And it may take a few years to figure that out, but it's the truth. Last few verses. We're going to only cover up to 15 this morning. However, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will tell you things to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. All these things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said that he will take of mine and declare it to you. So Jesus, again, giving them a little bit more, giving them a deeper understanding, and also helps us to understand as well. Okay? He will guide you into all truth. And there are thousands of religions, there are thousands of ways, and I've heard it all. You know, 
Now, my husband and I were from different religions, and for the children, we're going to pick one. You know, we're going to do it for the parents. We're going to do it for the sake of the wedding. And sometimes I'll say humbly, um, but how about one that's grounded on the truth? They look at me like, that's a stupid question. You know what I'm saying? Are we just following something to make us feel good, or do we want to follow the truth? Right? Really, who here wants to live a lie? Anybody? You want to live a lie? And I won't ask you to raise your hand, but some of us, maybe to a certain point, have lived a lie. Maybe we could look at ourselves in the mirror, and now we look in the mirror, and we've got, we got caught up in something, and we're living a lie. We're living a, a life of hypocrisy. But the Holy Spirit wants to guide us into all truth. He doesn't want that for us anymore. He wants us to live in the truth. He wants us to live in genuineness. He wants us to be able to look in the mirror, and maybe we don't like what we see physically at times, we pick, out, we pick ourselves to pieces, but that we can be comfortable with who we are because God is guiding us into all truth. That's available to everyone here this morning. Two, he, the Holy Spirit, will not speak on his own authority. He speaks what he hears. Too many today take liberties with the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit said this, and the Holy Spirit said that, and really it's a way to get others to listen to you. Oh, I heard from God. But is what the Holy Spirit said to you based on the word? Because if it's not, it isn't what the Holy Spirit said. It's that simple. Jesus says it right here. And three, he, the Holy Spirit, will A, glorify Jesus, B, take what is his, meaning Christ, and declare it to the believer. So Jesus came to glorify the Father. The Holy Spirit came to glorify the Son. We see this continuity. And when the Holy Spirit gets what he gets from the Son, the Son got it from the Father. So you see this, this continuity between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and he comes to declare it to the believer. And I've often asked believers, can God trust you? This is classified information. This is the very oracles of God. This may be a prophecy that he wants you to use to bring somebody to salvation. He wants to tell you something personal about one of your friend's lives that they're into that they don't know that you know, but because God gave you a word of wisdom, you know now. Can you be trusted? God wants to be able to trust us. You see all the time in the military and in the, you know, in the legislature, they have these certain closed-door meetings and they can only tell those that they don't think is going to get out or be used to hurt the, the, the mission, the integrity of the mission. Can we be trusted? I want to be trusted. As we close, let me just use a, an example. When there's a really bad car accident and there's danger or there's the bridge out or there's something on the road that can be, uh, you know, deadly to a motorist, what do the police do? They take those four lanes and they start cutting them down. They merge them down, the three lanes to two to one, to get you around the peril so that you can be safe. It's aggravating. It, it could be uh, affecting your schedule, but it's done for your own safety, right? Jesus was doing something similar with the disciples. There was a peril coming up. He was going to be removed. There was going to be persecution. And what he had to do with his disciples is he had to merge them into a spiritual place where they would not run and head for the hills and go to the farthest reaches of the earth and say, I'm not coming back, because they had to be there to build the church. So he had to get them, he had to merge them around this peril. Now, I'm going to say this as well, that in our lives, 
we have perils. You know, if you've lived long enough, you've had these, these situations, okay? And my question is, why would you want to do it alone? And, and I want to impress upon you today, and a, a preacher does no good when he reads the Bible to you and does not apply it to your life. Because why do we read the Bible? He wants us to be disciples. He wants us to be faithful. He wants us to be successful. He wants to use us and do great things in us. Everyone in this room, whether you know it or not, has a spiritual gift. And this is God's pattern. Problems, solutions. Problems, solutions. So my question to you is, do you still want to go it alone? Or would you like some company? Maybe you walked in here to church today and you thought, well, I'm going to get to hear about the disciples and Jesus. And now the words are piercing your heart and you're sitting in that seat thinking about your personal situations, your personal problems. And you're saying, I didn't sign up for this. And you're telling your uncle or your grandparent or your sibling, what did you tell the pastor? Nobody told me anything. I don't listen to stuff before service because it just confuses me. I always tell people, tell me after service. I'm too, too many thoughts right now. But the point is, you are face-to-face with the living God through his word, through his word. Do you want to continue doing it yourself, or do you want to do it with some help? Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we just thank you for your blessings. We thank you for your word, and uh, we just love the fact that you can take anything in the scripture and apply it to us in the year 2013. Different language.